I want you to turn to two places in the Old Testament, one you're most familiar with and the other one you're sort of familiar with, Psalms 23 and 2 Kings chapter 4. My title this morning for this message is kind of a long title for me, but is it well with your soul in life's valleys? Valleys are those lonely, uncertain, tense moments in which you have to make a decision or you reach a conclusion, something required of you, and you're not always sure or even how you'll do it. And it's a time of tension and stress, time of sorrow and anguish. But you can't avoid it. It doesn't go away. And in Psalms 23 and verse 4, it mentions that. It said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Death is a sobering experience. Yet we know it's going to happen. It's happened to everybody that's ever lived that we know of, except for the ones that were translated. And it faces all of us. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die. Maybe we should say, don't think it's so strange that you have to walk through that valley or deal with it. But even though you know it's coming, even with aging parents and you know they're about to make their journey into eternity, it's probably easier when your parents are older than when you're young. But you know it's coming and even when it comes, it's a valley of sorts. There's a lot of things to think about. Maybe some feelings you have about what you did or didn't do, so forth. But you have to deal with it. But this one here, the psalmist said about his own personal journey. He said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now, I don't know what others may fear. I'm adding this. What you may fear, what others may fear, how you cope with or how somebody else copes with this time I don't know. It all depends on what kind of input you've had in your life. If you know little about God, little about salvation, chances are this is a very awful time in your life. I've read accounts, historical accounts of people who came to the hour of death without Christ and their time was described as somewhat awful. Screaming and terror and fright because the final moments of life were about over. And you couldn't do a thing about it. Like he said in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, there is no man that hath power over the spirit to retain the spirit. Neither hath he power in the day of his death. And there is no discharge in that war. You're going to go through it. You're going to deal with it. And yet some people can. And some people can't. It is well with some. But it's not well with others. Now, why is that? Here's a man, here's a psalmist who said, if I walk through the valley, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't be afraid. You know the reason I won't be afraid, he said? Because I'm not alone. You, describing the almighty God, you are with me. I'm not saying you're with me because I was trained to talk like that in church. Because all church people say that. But in me, it's a reality of my heart. I know in whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is with me. And in this particular hour, I will not be afraid. There will be no terror in this event. 
And as I said, death is not a pleasant time. It's not something fun to talk about, but it is a reality, and everybody has to realize that. Now, if you go to 2 Kings chapter 4, it's a story of a person who did deal with it. And I like to glean some things from 2 Kings chapter 4 about it. You know, there's a lot of people that don't do well. I knew a man when I was growing up, a family, their daughter, who was a couple of years younger than I am, tragically died in a car wreck. And her parents never got over it. Their business they owned, my mother worked at the dry cleaning plant there in Charlestown, and they never recovered. They never entered her room again. They shut the door, never went in, never changed a thing from the last way it was when she was in it. They withdrew and died. There was something lacking in how to cope. It was not well with those people. It could have been, it should have been. Somebody else, you might say, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. Isn't it interesting that we all have various ideas of how we're gonna deal with things in this life? I've been in this church, you know, this is the only one I've ever been in, pastored anyway. I've had people sit in my office and tell me that some of the input they've had from others here, they should go get some medicine, go to a doctor, you need to do something about that. And I'm thinking, you know, there are people who need to do that. There are people who need to turn to the system of this world, which is patterned to heal people's lives. There are people who need to do that. But if we will listen to what God says, he has something better for us. It's called children's bread. It's not available to the world. It's available to God's people, specially and specific. And yet people hear that and listen to that. And if you've been in this church, you've heard it more than once a month. And yet their advice, listening to all of that, listening that long, weekly attendance and all of that, and yet having listened to it, the advice they give to somebody who is about to face that is that they should do something other than trust the Lord. That's their advice. And I wonder, how is it that one could say, well, you should go get some medicine. You should go to a doctor. Another one would say, well, don't do that. For the ones that would come to me and say, well, so-and-so said I should do this. I could say, let me tell you somebody else to go to. They would say, oh, I don't like them. They're legalistic. Well, chances are the light has come into their life and they see that while people have needs of this world's methods to heal, there's something better and they've learned it. And that's what they've chosen to believe. Not against people that don't, but I'm for what God says. You see, I want to be able to walk through this life every day, any day, and say, honestly say, sincerely say, it is well with my soul. I face the same calamities that everybody else faces. Sometimes experience similar pains that other people do. Same threats that come to you, come to me. Come to all of us. There was a time I wouldn't have done well coping with things. I would have probably messed up and fallen apart and panicked. But all of that has waned and been set aside because the light of God's word has come in and said there's a better way. There's a way that God approves of. He wants you to do it. That's what we want to do. 
I want to be able to say it is well with my soul because daily and continually God in Christ is with me. Whom should I fear? Of what should I be afraid? If God be for me, who can be against me? See, that's a truth. That's not a theory. That's not an idea. That's not some biblical writing that's morally nice and good. It's truth. If he's in you, he is with you. And if he's with you, it's for you. If he's for you, it is well with your soul. Well, here's a lady. A story in 2 Kings 4 about a prophet and a lady. And I'm sure you've heard this story. And I don't want to read all of this. I just want to go through it, beginning in verse 8. And it fell on a certain day that Elisha passed to Shunem, where there was a great woman, and she constrained him to eat bread. And it, as it was, that as often as he passed by, he turned in there to eat bread. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I perceive that this is a holy man of God which passeth by us continually. Now let me ask, stop right there and ask you a question. What was it about this man that caused her to perceive that he was holy? Was it what he said? Was it the way he acted? Of course. It was his demeanor. It was his character. It comes out of any of us. If you have it, it'll come out of you. If somebody's around you long enough, they'll know if you are or you aren't. They'll know if you're greedy or giddy. They'll know if you're selfish or proud. I mean, it won't take long for any of us to reveal the kind of person we are to somebody. If you're around them long enough, you'll know what they say, how they act, choices they make. And so after a while, he had passed by. This prophet came by and she said, come in and eat. And after a while, she said to her husband, you know, this man's a real deal. Let's do this. Let's build him a room up on the roof and let's put him a bed there and a little table there and a chair. And let's make his life just a little more comfortable than maybe it is. Let's make it easier for him. Let's in some way assist or help him do whatever it is he's doing so that when he comes by here, he'll be able to rest. Now, the Bible said this, that she was this kind of a woman. It describes her as a great woman. It doesn't mean she was real big. It just said she was great in the sense that she was noble or she was well-known or she was prominent. Maybe a woman that had a lot of influence that everybody knew and looked up to. I think in that sense, she was a great woman. She was not a flawed woman. A disrespected woman. One of those kind of people that we all meet in our life that you disrespect. They're nice, they're kind, they're gentle. It seems like they're just the kind of people you don't mind being around or hearing talk. And she was a great woman like that. And it says that she was respectful in verse 9 towards a ministry. She had regard for the ministry. This is a holy man of God. Let's get involved in what he's doing to make his life easy. So we see in this great woman, she not only had a heart for the things of God, but she had a concern for the things of man. And she did both. She had a heart and she did something about it. And he said to her, he goes on in this chapter to say to her, he said, look, you've been very kind and good to me. And 
you've done things well for us. And he said, can I do anything for you? Can I uh, speak to the king for you? Or can I speak to the commander of the army? And she said, I dwell among my own people. In other words, where I am, I'm fine. Everybody here is nice. We get along. I don't need anything. I don't need any help. Don't need any assistance. I don't need a good word with somebody at the top who has power. I'm fine. So we found here's a woman that's content. Now, all of this is going to factor in on how she handles her valley. But she's different. She's different than most people that we know. We don't have to be different from her. We can have the same heart and attitude that she had. We're all different, depending, again, on your input. Who taught you? Who trained you? Who you ran around with? What kind of education you had? What kind of opinion you had or, or were allowed to have? And, you know, a lot of kids are allowed to have a lot of opinions today. They can sass their parents and sass their teachers and use profanity to express themselves. But that's the input a person has, and that will a whole lot determine how that person fares later on in life. They won't do well. They'll try drugs, maybe try infidelity in their marriage, maybe another fling will, that won't work. The drugs won't work. Maybe they get one of them music boxes and hang it around their neck and listen to that stupid stuff, and that won't work. I promise you that won't work. All it does is just drag you deeper into that valley where you don't even know how to get out anymore. And some people don't come out. But that's a choice. That's the way their life went because of the choices they made and that's where they were. And it was not well with them. Yes, somebody else sitting in the same church with that person might have been this great woman here. Man, she turned out so well. She had such a different attitude, such a different look at things. She was aware of all the problems around, but she was also aware of something greater. And I think it was something that God had put in her heart. And so this prophet said to her, what can I do for you? She said, I don't need anything. And Gehazi said to Elisha said, you know, she doesn't have any children. And her husband's getting old. I don't know why they have to say that, but they said, and her husband is old. He must have been 99 years old. Her husband is old. She didn't have any children. So the prophet didn't ask her if she wanted any children. Didn't say, let me pray for you. In fact, he didn't pray. He just simply called her in. He said, uh, great lady, um, this time next year, you're going to have a child. And she said, don't do that. Don't deceive me. She probably had wanted that many times earlier in her life, and it just didn't work. And she was maybe resigned to never having one. And yet here comes a prophet, a man I have to believe because it's in the Bible. He was inspired to do this. Again, he didn't ask her if she wanted a child. She didn't ask him to pray for her. He just simply said to her that, this time next year, you're going to have a son. I guess a son is a child. It says in verse 16 about this season, time of life, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, thou man of God, do not lie unto me because I really want this and don't get my hopes up. Because maybe her hopes were beginning to wane. And the Bible says a woman conceived. You know why she conceived? Because God said she would. 
You know why she had a son? Because God said she would. There's no math involved here. Just taking God at his word. And about that time next year, she had a son. And then we skip a few years from when she had the child, from verse 17 to verse 18. I don't know how old the child was. He had gone out in the field with his father to work. It must have been a hot day. Whatever it was, but the child was out there able to work between verses 17 and 18. So I don't know how old he was. Let me just say he was seven, maybe eight years old. Because if he had been 15 or 16, it had been pretty tough to sit on his mama's lap. But it said in verse 18, and the child was grown and fell on a day that he went out with his father to the reapers. And he said unto his father, my head, my head. And he said to the lad, carry him to his mom. That's what daddy say. They don't know what to do with their children. Take him to his mother. Let me tell you something. Mothers are more intense with the concern of, of their children. They are. They're the ones that had to bear them, deliver them, and then raise them, deal with them, get up at night with them and everything else. They have a different kind of investment in the well-being of their children. Not that dads don't, but dads, let's face it, they're usually busy, don't have time to pay attention to all those things. They're apt to take it less than maybe the mother would. And some, you can go overboard with that. Some mothers, they fall apart if they cough. Ah! And dad say, it's just a cough, relax. Now, she's like that because of something. And he's calm because of something. Whatever input's in their life, that's the way they are. But anyway, this boy, he said, my head, my head. He said, take him to his mom. And the Bible said, verse 20, and when he had taken him and brought him to his mom, he sat on her knees till noon and he died. Now that would have to be a difficult time. Would you agree? You can't imagine you've never had that happen to you like it happened to her. We don't know, we don't wanna know. We don't ever want this testimony, this story. But this boy, little fellow, sat in his mom's lap. She probably aware that something's really wrong here and I am not able to do anything for him. And the child died. I was thinking about this and reflected back when my sister died, whom I never knew. I was alive then. And the doctor had just told my mom that her only daughter had just died. And my mother told me one time, she didn't talk about it much, but she talked about it two or three times in my life, of how dark that room became and how uncertain everything was. You've just lost the only girl you've had and she'd already had a hysterectomy after I was born, so she's not gonna have any more girls, that's it. And she came, introduced herself to her mom and her dad, stayed a while, they admired her and then she left. And, and such a loss. And then the doctor said to my mother at the same time, you might as well take your little boy, that was me, home because he's dying. We can't do anything for him. And the same thing she had, I had. Same condition she was in, I was in. And my mom said, you can't imagine what it's like to know that one of your children are dead and the other one, the doctor said, is gonna die. 
you can't imagine what that's like. She said, I don't think your dad ever got over it. He never talked about it again, never talked about it to me, never mentioned it. But it had to be a hard time. Death is like that, especially when it's little like that. But it comes down to this mother was present at the time that it happened. What kind of woman is she? What will she do here? What is she going to do? Would she panic? What would you do? You don't know. What would the average person do in America, in the world? A lot of people would just start screaming. I think screaming is a release of hopelessness. I don't know. Ah, I can't do nothing about it. Maybe if I scream, I can do something about it. No, but they don't know that. There's this tears of grief and sorrow and deep, deep anguish. Because something happened and there was nothing that you could do about it. Many people, I think, just fall apart. They have to be sedated or helped or something because they can't cope. And who says you're supposed to cope with these things all the time? Who knows what we'll do? It was not a good situation. So what did she do? Well, the Bible says it. And she went up and laid this boy of hers on the bed of the man of God and shut the door upon him and went out. Now, I'll tell you what, today she would be badly condemned in our society today for doing that. Even though there's nothing anybody can do about it, you're condemned if you do that. Your child died, she took him upstairs, put him in the prophet's bed, shut the door and walked out. But she didn't go downstairs and cook supper. She called her husband and she said, send me, I pray, one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and come again. He said, why are you going to him? It's not a new moon or a Sabbath day. And what did she say at the end of verse 23? It shall be well. Now, what was she talking about? She's got a situation she didn't even talk about to her husband. He didn't know what was going on. She might have known that if he had known that, he and all these people, they would have just fallen apart. There's only son he had. So she put him in the room. What a woman. Again, we may not understand her. It's just what she did. God's trying to show us something. All things are written for our learning. We're supposed to learn something here. It's not to condemn any of us. It's to teach us. She put that boy in that bed. She went out and said, go tell my husband that I'm going to go see the prophet and I'll come back. He said, why? She said, it shall be well. It's okay. The word well means peace. It shall be peace. Peace. It's okay. Everything's fine. Everything is fine as far as she's concerned because she obviously knew something. So she went forth to that prophet. Let's get down to verse 25. So she went and came into the man of God to Mount Carmel. And it came to pass when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to Gehazi, his servant, Behold, yonder is that Shelbyville, uh, uh, excuse me, that Shunammite. Can you all say Shunammite? There you go. And now he said, Run, I pray thee to uh, meet her and say to her, Is it peace with thee? Is it well with you? 
Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your child? And what did she tell him? I may ask you a question. Time out. We need to deal with this. Was she dishonest? We're accused of being dishonest. If we act our faith, people think we're either strange, cultish, or dishonest. But I believe with all my heart that God, if I get to this prophet, if I believe with all my heart, inspired that this man is going to bring that child back to me, and I say it is well, am I dishonest? It depends on who I'm talking to because most people in the world have no regard for what God can do or promise to do. They read about it, but then they let somebody talk them out of it or they reason in the natural mind that that can't be. Reason, usually because I've never seen it done, I've never heard of it. As though you have to see it or hear of it in order for the word to be true. God doesn't need anything out there for his word to be true. His word is true because he said it. It's not true because you believe it. It's true because he said it. Believing is the privilege you get of it becoming yours in reality. So she ran to it. Gehazi said, is it well with you, your husband, your son? She said, it is well. It is well. When she came to him, to the hill, she caught him by the feet. Now let's leave this scenario right now and go back into the New Testament. And let me ask you some questions. I'm talking to Shelbyville Christian Assembly visitors and whoever's watching. This morning, you people that are here, is it really well with you? Have you given up complaining? Have you given up bitterness? Have you given up the stomping of the foot and the slamming of the dash of the car or the slamming of the door? Have you given it up? Have you walked away or walking away from all the old traits of your life in the past, which evidence the fact that you don't know what to do except just explode? Have you walked away from that? Is it really well this morning with us? All of us here, me, you, out there, all of us. Is it really well with you? Of course you don't know what you would do in this situation or that situation. You know what you're doing right now. And God is teaching you what you should do when the valleys in your life show up because they will. Valleys are not intended to overthrow you. It's where you operate in the light of what you've been taught. They don't go away. They're there. You got to deal with it. You're going to be tested and tried all the days of your Christian life. You're not going to be discharged from the wars of life. It doesn't happen. There's no leave of absence. You can't do that either. You've got to deal with it. And how you deal with it and how I deal with life's and its valleys is evidence of whether or not it really is well with us. Some people do really well when there's no storm blowing. But when the storm blows, they become... A different person. I don't think it should be like that either. Let's look at a couple of people that you're familiar with in the New Testament who did well in difficult circumstances. You remember, first of all, in Mark chapter 7, 
if you want to turn back there, you may. We're going to come back to 2 Kings, so you may want to put your wife's hand there. So it's chapter 7 of Mark and verse 24. This is a wonderful story. We call it the story of the Syrophoenician woman who was not Jewish. She was not one of the Jewish people that Jesus came to seek and, and to save when he came. Verse 24, and when he came to the borders of Tyre and Sidon, he entered into a house and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. For a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. Now I wonder, I wonder what she had heard. In America today, we've heard just about every story of Jesus and all the scenarios, ups and downs, this ways and that ways. Some lives have been affected by it. Many lives weren't. Now hers obviously was, wasn't it? She had heard about him. Didn't say she followed him around. She was a follower. Didn't say she watched him. It just said she had heard about him. I wonder what she heard. Somebody was talking about Jesus. What were they talking about? Well, probably that he had power with God, like Elisha. He spoke to trees and they died. He put his fingers in a deaf man's ears and they were open. He told a man one time to go wash your eyes in the pool of Siloam after he put clay in there. And he said this and told another man, go show yourself to the priest. And they were healed of leprosy. Who did this? Jesus. Every time he ministers, things like this happen. And she was one of those unique people. We don't find many of them today either. But she was one of those unique people whose hope sprang. Here is my solution to my problem. What's my problem? I have a daughter, a little girl that I want to put in cute little dresses and watch her grow up and be a young lady and be proud of this and that and make a good mother or husband, whatever she's going to do. I just want to watch my child be like other girls. But she couldn't. She had an unclean spirit. Now, it doesn't tell us how that unclean spirit manifested. There are many unclean spirits in the New Testament. They have various manifestations. We usually think of uncleanness as morally or sexually unclean, and that's very true. There's a lot of uncleanness in the world today and in uncleanness in music and uncleanness in the theaters and in certain kinds of TV shows that appeal to the baser nature of those who like to watch it. People like to be aroused by things that are morally unclean and they don't realize that behind the production and the promotion of this thing is a spirit a lot of people don't believe in spirits today but he's been successful at convincing people there are no such thing as demons you know people speak of the devil today or in demonology that you know he's dealing with his demons the article says or she's dealing with her demons well I'll guarantee you one thing you can't reason with them Great deceiver, great deception. The devil has one goal in this life, to kill, to steal, and to destroy, to snare you, to capture you, and to ruin your life. And in this case, this demon was unclean. 
I don't know what he did. I don't know. But she was not normal like other kids should be. And the mother had this deep, like a mother would, heartfelt concern for her little girl. She went to Jesus. She's not Jewish. She probably knew that he didn't come to minister to Gentiles. She was from up in Syria. They called her Phoenician, Syro-Phoenician. She came to him anyway. I like that part. She barged right in there. She said, son of David, have mercy on my daughter. And he told her that, you know, it's not right to take children's bread. Can you imagine? It is not right to take children's bread and give it to dogs. She besought him. And he said, it's not right to take children's bread and give it to dogs. Now, you know what today's reaction is? This fragile mindset of this generation today, you know what it is? A dog. Do you hear what he called me a dog? This is Mr. Religion. This is the love of God. He called me a dog. Well, thanks a lot, buddy. And off the people act like that. Don't tell me they don't. They not only act like that, they write like that. They're trained like that. They are released from somebody to live in this society with a horrible attitude that I want mine, get out, I'm in your face. They're like that. But you don't want to be like that. That's right. Because you don't have to be. That's what spankings are for. I mean, that's what uh, discipline is for. But she said, you know, Lord, I don't disagree with you. I'm sure that the character of dogs belong to us Gentiles. That we are inferior to the Jewish people for whom you came. And that what you all have on your table is for you all. But Lord, I would remind you that under the table are the dogs, the house pets. And they eat what you all didn't want. And when you were fed something and it just went on the floor, the dogs get it. And she said, I only want a crumb. Because what you all are eating on that table called children's bread is so powerful that a crumb, a crumb of what they don't want will drive this spirit out of my daughter. Jesus didn't pray for her, didn't lay hands on her, didn't even see the daughter. He said, you go. Your daughter is healed. And the Bible said the devil came out of her. You know why the devil came out of her? Because he had to. Devils have no right in us. He came out of her. She wasn't even Jewish. The next person was Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. The centurion had come to Jesus. He wasn't a Jew. He was a Roman. He was a commander of maybe 100 men. And he said, Lord, verse 6, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. Let me ask you a question. Why did this centurion come to Jesus? 
He probably had seen him operate before because they believed in crowd control. They wanted to make sure they didn't get a gathering up and then rebel. So the Romans were around a whole lot of what Jesus did. They saw, they heard. This centurion, one of those special, unique situations of all the centurions that were in Israel, one of them, one of them was touched. He was touched by who Jesus was. These centurions, the Romans didn't care anything about Jews. They had no respect for Jews. They didn't like going from Rome down to some old dusty, dirty place called Palestine or Canaan or Israel with a bunch of rebellious people that are just dirty and all of that. They didn't like it down there. They had no regard for these people. They made their life, you know, we don't want to be here, but we have to be here. We're assigned to Israel. But this man, this man, when he heard about Jesus, or when he watched him operate, he was touched by it. He didn't elbow somebody and say, what, this is a fraud. He looked at that and saw the real deal happen. Just like that centurion at the cross when Jesus died. It came to him too, surely this was the son of God. He probably got ha, ha, ha because he said that, but he saw it. And the centurion said to him, very meekly and very humbly. He said, sir, my, my servant, my servant is at home. He has the palsy. There's nothing normal about his life. He breathes and he eats and he sleeps, but he has no quality of life. He's grievously tormented. I mean, he is helpless. And it just breaks your heart to watch him, how he lives and how he has to. You can't do nothing about it. There's no procedure. There's no place. There is nothing that can turn this man's life around. You know what Jesus said? He said, I'll come and heal him. Let me ask you a question. Could he? Could Jesus just go and heal somebody? Hey, the centurion wasn't a Jew. His servant probably wasn't Jewish. Could he just say, well, I'll go heal him? How would Jesus know he could heal him? Because God gave him the spirit without measure. He only did what the father told him to do. He only went where the father told him to go. I mean, he would stay up at night and, and pray all night and God would show him things. And that's what he did the next day. Stopped a funeral one day at a place called Nain up in north central Israel. Touched the casket. A little boy came to life. What an experience that must have been to carry in that casket and all of a sudden it started shaking. How awkward it must have been when he stopped the procession. Whoa! Stop. He said, young man, I say to thee, arise. And out of the casket he came. He didn't touch it. He didn't lay hands on anybody. He spoke. Lazarus, come forth. He only spoke. And Lazarus was the ultimate experience. He was dead. But he wasn't dead enough that words of life could not bring him back to life. Jesus was the real deal. Jesus said to you and to me, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. The works that I do. Huh. You mean we're supposed to do what you did? Exactly. Now, Jesus said, I didn't try to raise everybody from the dead. I didn't try to heal everybody I saw. I was instructed when inspired to do what I could with ones that I was pointed to. 
If I thought I could just do anything I wanted to do, I'd go to the first children's hospital I could find. I'd go in Louisville, and that place would be empty. All the miseries in that place would be out of there. But you see, what I want to believe and what I really can believe are two different things. God has to inspire true faith. The woman knew that if she could get to that prophet, the lady with the unclean spirit and her daughter knew if she could get to Jesus. The centurion knew if he could get to Jesus. He said, you don't have to come to my house. You speak the word only. But today it takes much more than that. You see, we live in this new generation. You've got to go to five national meetings, have 10 book writers lay hands on you, and then you, there's nothing complicated about anything, anything that Jesus did. He simply either spoke a word or he touched them. They were healed. Some of them, after a while, they were healed. He did tell us, you said, you shall lay hands on the sick. They shall recover. It may be a while, but they shall because you laid hands on them like he did. And they shall recover. You don't find many that believe that today, but it's still in the Bible whether you believe it or not. That's right. My unbelief doesn't make it not true. It's true for those who believe it. And yet, but it's true whether you believe it or not. Right. Now, another story in the Bible was Paul. You don't have to turn to this. Acts 27 on a boat. The boat was out in the ocean. It was breaking up, hitting rocks and throwing up this way and throwing that way. And they threw all the cargo off the ship. They were taking Paul to Rome to be judged. And in the midst of all of that turmoil on the sea, of, I mean, on the sea, the rocking back and forth, nothing is looking good. This looks really bad. And it was bad. And Paul said, sirs, be of good cheer. For this night, the angel of the Lord has stood by me and has said that we'll lose all the cargo, but nobody's life will be lost on this boat. And then he said these wonderful words in verse 25 of Acts 27. He said, wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer. He said, I believe, God, that it shall be even as it was told me. What, pray tell, has God been telling us in this book all of our church life? How many times does God say things like healing? How many times does he mention it and yet people act like they've never, ever heard it? What have you been listening to? You talk about salvation, the very fundamental basic thing. He forgives us of all our iniquities in Psalm 103. And yet some people say, well, to be saved, you have to do this. You have to do nothing. You have to recognize you can do nothing to save yourself. You can only believe the report that God gave. God gave words. It's through words and the power of words. And in an advanced state, Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words... Abide in you. He said, you will ask what you will, and it shall be done for you. It's in the book all the time. All the time. All these years we've been in church and all the misery we've gone through, those dark nights and valleys, and here was all these nuggets of truth that we have read. Could you have said, 
I believe God, it shall be even as it was told me. Or if an angel had appeared to you, would you have done what the disciples did in the boat in Matthew 14? Jesus walked on the sea. Remember that? And remember the guys in the boat when they saw him? When they saw Jesus out there with Peter, what did they do? When peace like a river. No, they <laughs> The Bible says they cried out for fear, and the word cry was a, like a, ah, like that kind of a cry. They've been walking with him for three years. They've seen miracle after miracle. He sent them out to do the same miracles, and he appeared in a storm, in a valley. He came to them, and they went, ah! What would you have done? If the boat was crashing up and suddenly there was a, a being who wasn't on this ship as a hard hand, but there was somebody different, anybody you knew, standing there and said, you're going to lose all the stuff on this ship, but everybody's life will be spared. Fare you well. Would you go, oh, thank you. <laughs> hey, thank you. Now, Paul didn't fall apart. He didn't scream and yell because he knew in whom he believed. His walk with Jesus wasn't a casual Wednesday night, Sunday morning walk. It wasn't just a religious walk. I belong to the Methodist Presbycostal Church and therefore it wasn't anything like that. It was a life. He breathed it. He slept it. ate it. It was all about Jesus. And when he saw him, he knew who he was. And he was so happy about that that he told the guys on the boat, hey, all of you, let me have your attention, which would be tough when you're going through this. But he said, be of good cheer. That's a lockup right there. Be of good cheer. Where's the duct tape? Be of good cheer. Can you see what's going on? That's what they would say today. That's the educated mindset of today. Be of good cheer. Why don't you get real? What tree did you come out of? Look at the storm, man. I see the storm and see it as well as you can. I'm as wet as you are by the water that's splashing on me. But I have found something you haven't found. I'm trying to tell you what it is. Be of good cheer for it shall be even as God told me. You're going to be saved on this boat because I'm on it. You're welcome, he said. I remember once thinking, it's an arrogant thought, and I'll admit that. On an airplane landing in Sydney, Australia, coming in, we came in too late on the runway, and we had to re-gear up and get off the other end of it, out over the ocean. And the plane, when it had to take off again, it was tough to get that big thing going, but they did. It bounced a couple times, and you hear the engines roar, and everything, and somebody went, ah! Back at the back, and I remember thinking, just thinking, forgive me for thinking this, okay? Lady, relax. As long as I'm on this plane, it'll be all right. <laughs> Y'all forgive me, all right? There's a way you could say that, and there was a way you shouldn't say that. Hey, be right, you know. <laughs> Jesus, she said in another story, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. He said, Martha, only believe. Yeah. Amen. Only what? Only believe. Only believe? He's dead. 
What are you talking about only believe? He's dead. He's buried in a tomb. But the time, we, it'll be four days. And he said, didn't I tell you to just believe? What if a body had been in a tomb for a couple months and it was sort of drippy, <laughs> slimy? You know what decay is. When you do beef, you call it aging. But do you think it would have mattered how long anybody was dead no. to Jesus? No. The power of his word doesn't even take into account how long you've been dead or how advanced a disease is. He doesn't even take it into account. Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, it's pretty far gone in your body. I don't know if we can do it. He didn't even take account. Dead, smed, three heads. It didn't matter. He went to the tomb. He said, Lazarus. And in, in the same volume, he said, come forth. And as I like the part somebody said years ago, and I just repeated it. He had to mention his name when he said that, else they had all come out of them holes. Yeah. The whole hillside would have come undone. It all come out. But he said, in particular, you, Lazarus. And he came out. That's in your Bible. Do you think when Jesus stood there that it was well with him? You think he had any concerns? No panic, no drama, no drama. None of that. You know why? Because something was greater than that in him. He had something that superseded that. And it was called assurance. We call it faith. That what he was about to speak, God would cause to happen. And anybody he spoke it to, God would cause it to happen. He even said to you, if you say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou taken up and cast into the sea and shall not doubt in your heart, it'll be done. Well, there are are those who did that and we're inspired by this. There's other stories. Then there's stories that weren't so good. One of those is another time on the sea at the end of Mark's gospel, chapter four, and Jesus was asleep. Remember the story? In the hinder part of the ship, he was asleep. And a storm came up and the boat was filling full of water. They didn't know what to do. There was no remedy for this. This boat is going down. And yet there's Jesus in the back of the ship. He's wet, but he's asleep. And they woke him up. And he said, Master, carest thou not that we perish? I don't know if they said it calmly or not. And he woke up calmly and said, Peace! Be still! And the wind quit blowing the waves became still and the boat made a little sound. And everybody was bug-eyed and big-eyed. And Jesus said, how is it that you have no faith? What would they write today about that? No faith? You mean to tell me we're about to go down and the ship filled up? And he said, don't have any faith. Come on, you're a dreamer. What would they say? What would this liberal mindset that's in the church today say about that? Well, that worked for them then because Jesus was there. But you know, if it happened to you, you can't rely on that. Why not? 
He said, what things soever you desire when you pray, if you believe you've got them, you'll get them. Didn't he say that? Didn't he say that if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say to this whatever tree or, and it'll be thrown in the sea. And he said, and nothing shall be impossible to you. Didn't he say the works that he did, you will do the same things? Man, it should be well with us. We should get up in the morning, the devil tremble. Oh, no, he's awake. We should not be afraid to face whatever we're led to face in a day. And there are valleys out there. They're there. Not making light of that. But you're not going through a valley empty. You're going through a valley armed. And if you've paid any attention at all, the best weapon you've got is the word of God. Because it's the sword of the Spirit. When Peter walked on the sea and he began to sink, what did Jesus say to him? He said, you should have read about the Shunammite woman. She didn't sink. Why did you doubt, Peter? Oh, you have little faith. Well, that brings us back to our story. If you go back to 2 Kings 4, we'll commence closing. 2 Kings Chapter 4, where we left off, verse 27. Now, here's a woman. I'd like to meet her one day. Amen. Just because she's in this book. And she came to the man of God to the hill. She caught him by the feet. But Gehazi came in to pull her away. You're not supposed to grab a man of God's feet. And the man of God said, let her alone. Why? Because her soul is vexed, troubled. It's been made bitter in her. Now, see, she's normal. She wasn't some kind of a zombie that was impervious to pain and difficulty. She had feelings, but she had faith. There's a place for feelings. There's a greater place for faith. And when she got to that prophet, she got to his feet because this is what she believed was the solution to her problem. If I can just get to the man of God. There was a woman in the Bible that said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. Jesus, speak to my daughter. I got a servant lying home with sick. It's the word of God in the vessel that God had before you. And she went to him. Her soul was vexed within her. And she said, did I desire a son of my Lord? Did I ask you for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? I don't want to be let down again. I would have rather never had one than to lose one like this. She didn't say that. I said that. Verse 29, then he said to Gehazi, get up your loins. Take my staff in your hand and go your way to her house. If you meet anybody, don't even talk to them. Don't greet anybody. Don't say hello. Just keep going. Don't stop and talk. Don't waste time. Keep going. And lay my staff upon the face of the child. Now, I don't know how long it took him to go from where she was with him to go do that. But she didn't leave the prophet. He wasn't going to get rid of her because somebody carried his stick to lay it on her child. No. No. Verse 30. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord liveth, as my soul liveth, I will not leave you. You've got me to deal with the rest of your life at your feet. 
You're going to have to feed me hanging on to your feet. I don't know how you're going to get around dragging me around, but I am not leaving you. You started this. I did not ask for it. You spoke a word. God honored it. Now, I don't know what happened with my child, but you're the one I'm sure that can fix this. Now, my heart is broken. I'm poured it out before you because there's a place for grief and sorrow for a Christian. And she poured it out there. And I think you know the story. He went with her back to the house. He met his servant that said, you know, I put that stick on her, on that boy, but it didn't do any good. So he went back. He went up to the room and there laid that boy. He was dead, laying on his bed. And he laid on top of the child, stretched himself out over the child, eyes to eyes, nose to nose, he breathed on him. The Bible said the body of the child began to get warm, but he didn't come back to life. And then the prophet did what sometimes the man of God has to do. He began to pace back and forth. Verse 35, he walked in the house to and fro. What's he doing? What's the prophet doing? Prophets don't just know things. They only know what God shows them. And he didn't really know any more than what he did. I mean, he didn't say go lay on the child. He laid on the child. But he had no specific instruction from the Lord. So here's a prophet walking back and forth. We're not talking about what you saw last night or who won or who went or what you bought. He's walking back and forth because there's nothing greater in his life right now than hearing from God about that woman's child. If it takes the rest of the month, whatever it takes, I am committed myself to getting an answer for that lady. And at some point, it came. And he went back upstairs and he stretched himself upon him and the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Wasn't that good? If he sneezed, seven times and opened his eyes, he ain't dead no more. He's alive. And the Shunammite woman came upstairs. She bowed herself before him in honor and thanksgiving. She took her child's stories over. Why did she say it is well with my soul? Did she say it is well with my soul because she believed? Let me ask you a question. Time out. Is there power in this word faith, the principle of faith, of taking God at his word, trusting in God to do what he said? Is there power there? Is power lacking in the church and in Christian people that they can't do that or they won't do that? Why is so much of our hope in some institution somewhere? In the New Testament, you know, as far as having it is well attitude and mindset, the Bible said that with God, all things are possible. And with you, all things are possible. And he said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Is it or not? It is. Well, what's the problem? It doesn't matter what the problem is. Oh, he's pretty sick. I don't care how sick anybody is. You can't be sicker than dead. And dead was no more of a problem to Jesus than deafness. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is faith. That's what matters. 
sickness and disease. What did he say in James chapter 5? He said, is there any sick among you? Let him call the elders of the church and they shall give him two aspirins. There are people that need aspirins. But don't tell me I ought to take a couple because I don't want them. We haven't had medicine in our bodies in nearly 40 years. Not even an aspirin. Because we're special? No. Special in the sense of being chosen, maybe. Being elect, just like you. Why is it that some say we don't need it and others say, well, if I don't have it, I, I can't make it? It's input. When the word was taught, you might have been busy or distracted or didn't have time to come that night. And therefore, when problems like valleys came into your life, it wasn't well with you because that hopeless, I don't know what to do expression came. So what do you do? All of our sicknesses and all of our disease were carried and bore by Jesus. When the devil tries to bring stuff around, you know what you can say? Say it. I mean, you got to use words. You say, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. What God laid on Jesus at the cross, you have no right to lay on me because he bore all of that away for me. And if he bore it away, it ain't mine. It isn't mine. Excuse me. If it isn't mine, then you got to take it away from here. I don't receive it. Sometimes the devil sticks around to see if you really mean it. Sometimes the battle gets pretty intense. That's when you find out if it's well with your soul or not. Because when you endure through the night, joy will come in the morning. Amen. Valleys face us all. There's nobody that does it. Some people face them longer and darker than others, but they're still valleys. And the question is, I want to leave you with this. In what you face in your life and what you're facing, is it really well with your soul? Will you triumph today in Christ? Do you believe what is written. Because if you do, it is well with your soul. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for your tolerance of us, for your long suffering to us. Sometimes we're so foolish, we drag our feet and we act like we've never heard a thing. But continue to deal with us, Lord. Do what is necessary to bring us into the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ so that we can say for me to live is Christ. The works that I do are instructed by him. Grant us that it be well with our souls as our testimony for the rest of our lives. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.